continuing our study of systematic theology. Today we're specifically looking at Christology, uh, the study of Christ, and specifically within that we're looking at the person of Christ. So um, in a few weeks we're going to be looking at, or next week we're going to be looking at the work of Christ, but today we're focusing more on the person of Christ. So when we think about history, uh, when we think about prominent figures in history, when we think about all the kings, queens, military conquerors, presidents, all those types of things, powerful, significant people, most historians would agree, Christian and secular, uh, even atheist historians would agree that the most significant person who ever walked the earth as far as changing the world was this guy, this Jewish carpenter from this little village called Nazareth in an area of the Roman Empire that really was kind of an afterthought of the Roman Empire, nothing that they felt was very important. Uh, so is this guy who's, who's there in Nazareth, and he, he never had any political power. He never held a political office. He never led a nation. He never uh, was in a military campaign. He had no wealth. In fact, the last three years of his life, he was homeless. So we have this guy named Jesus Christ. Now, to many of you in here, he's a lot more than a historical figure. He's your personal Lord and Savior. But there might be some in here who just see him as an historical figure, or maybe you see him as someone that we talk about on Sunday mornings. Maybe he's kind of like Santa Claus and or a genie uh, in, the, in the bottle that we just kind of send up a prayer to when we want to get something, or we're in a tight spot. Uh, maybe he's a get-out-of-jail-free card, or maybe he uh, is a get out of hell card for some of us. But really what we want to talk about today, our goal today is just to present a faithful description of who Jesus Christ is. So last week we discussed sin. We discussed the fall. We discussed how we were all under the curse of sin since the Garden of Eden. And uh, we discussed how we're all sinners under the wrath of a holy God. But this morning, the good news is, is that we have hope. And our hope lies in this person, Jesus Christ. So today we're just going to dig more deep into who he is, what scripture says about him. Like I said, next week we're going to be looking at the work of Christ. Today we're going to focus on the person of Christ. So I've mentioned before and we've talked about uh, through this course, other folks have talked about how scripture, the word of God, is our ultimate authority. When we study theology, we're, we're looking at what scripture says about a subject and we're putting together uh, our thoughts that are based on that. So it's really, we can kind of sum up what Scripture says about Jesus Christ in one sentence. And it's this. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. I'm just going to read that one more time. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. So that's a really easy concept, right? Everybody here is like, man, that's easy stuff. We can just go drink coffee and hang out because you all got it figured out. But seriously, that's, for me, I don't know about you guys, for me, that is a tough concept to wrap our heads around how Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, in one person. That's hard for our human minds, our fallen uh, finite minds to really wrap our heads around that. But that's what we're going to be looking at today. That's what we're going to dig into. So the good news of Christianity is that 
the eternal Son of God permanently took into himself a human nature, and in doing so became qualified to be a suitable, compassionate, and all-sufficient Savior. One of the clearest uh, expositions on the person of Christ, on his identity, can be found in the prologue to John's Gospel. And I've just got a few verses here from that prologue, and just listen to these verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Further on it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Further on, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So, as I've said, this proposition that Jesus was both fully God and fully man has been difficult for the church uh, throughout the ages. It's been difficult. There's been a lot of heresies, uh, a lot of false teaching that's popped up around that. What happens when we don't understand something fully is we apply man's knowledge to biblical uh, doctrine, and, and sometimes we can take Scripture out of context, and we, we just mess things up, and that's not what we want to do today. And it's really no surprise that this is one of the places where Satan attacks the church. Satan attacks the church with false teaching here, and we need to consider what the Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 4. He says this, Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So John here is pointing to a belief in the incarnation as a sign of what is from God and what is not. So this morning as we explore this doctrine, we're going to be looking at the humanity of Christ. Then we're going to look at the deity of Christ. And then we're going to see how those two natures uh, come together in one person. So let's just start with the humanity of Christ. So why did Jesus need to be human anyway? Why did the God of the universe need to take on human flesh? I think the New Testament gives us several reasons for this. Uh, Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology textbook uh, really identifies seven reasons that he sees through Scripture. And I'm just going to go through those, and you might want to write these down uh, if you have a pen. So he points out that Jesus needed to become man, number one, for representative obedience. For representative obedience. So we spoke last week about sin. We spoke how we are all under the curse of sin, the curse of Adam. Uh, Our God is a just God, and we are under his wrath because his standard is perfect righteousness. But Jesus obeyed where Adam failed. And just just as though... Through the disobedience of one man, through the disobedience of Adam, we were all made sinners. So through the obedience of one man, we're made righteous. So Jesus lived a life that we couldn't live. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 through 19 says this. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So, 
Number two, Jesus needed to become a man to be a substitute sacrifice. He had to be made like us in every way so that he could be an acceptable sacrifice for man. Since it was man who rebelled against the creator. So number two is to be a substitute sacrifice. Number three, Jesus needed to become a man to be the one mediator between God and man. We need Christ to represent us to God and Christ to represent God to us. Only someone both fully divine and fully human can effectually mediate between God and man. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 5 says this, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So number three is to be a mediator between God and man. Number four, Jesus needed to become human to fulfill God's original purpose for man to rule the creation. So to fulfill God's original purpose for man to rule creation. So Christ rules creation at the right hand of God the Father. And that was the purpose uh, of, that God had for creation. Number five, Christ needed to become human to be our example and pattern in life. He showed us how to live life in this world. He taught us, he gave us the standard that we are to live by. We'll never live up to his standard, but we are to strive after it. He gave us a human model to follow in this life. So number five is to be our example and pattern in this life. Number six, Christ became man to be the pattern for our redeemed bodies. Jesus' resurrected body is the pattern in which our bodies will follow when we're resurrected with him on the last, or after him on the last day. So number seven, Jesus became man to sympathize as high priest. Jesus experienced all of our struggles here on earth. He experienced temptation. He experienced physical pain, emotional pain. Uh, He went through those things. He had a human uh, psyche, and so he experienced human emotions. Uh, Consider what Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18 say. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So we see from these seven reasons that we just reviewed that Jesus needed to be human. But how do we know he was human? What scriptural evidence do we have from that? Uh, first of all, we can look at Galatians 4.4, 4, and it says that when the time had fully come, God get us, sent his son born of a woman. So he was born of a woman. Uh, in Luke 1, we find the account of Gabriel uh, speaking to Mary. He's speaking to her about uh, the fact that she's going to be carrying the Messiah. And this is what he says to her. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called Son of God. So you see that the virgin birth made it possible for the full deity of God and the full humanity uh, to be combined in one person. 
And really, we need to think about the wisdom that God had in doing it that way. What if Jesus just came down as an adult man, if he just appeared? And we've, you know, we've probably all thought about things like this. What if he just kind of appeared? Really, he would almost be alien. He would have not been born of a woman. He would have not have gone through childhood. He would have not had to learn all the things that he had to learn. He wouldn't have had to struggle through certain things. It, it just wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have felt right. It wouldn't, we wouldn't have been able to identify him as a human as a part of Adam's race. On the flip side, what if he was just born uh, by two human parents and, uh, and then maybe was imparted the, his divinity later on, then we would have trouble really believing that he was fully divine and that he, could fu- he had the authority to forgive our sins, and that would be difficult uh, as well. So praise God that he sent his son the way he did. One author says this about it. He says that God ordained it, ordained a combination of human and divine influence in the birth of Christ so that, one, his full humanity would be evident to us from the fact of his ordinary human birth from a human mother. And, two, his full deity would be evident from the fact of his conception in the Virgin Mary's womb by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. All right. So the next aspect we're going to think about in Christ's humanity is that Jesus had a human body. Uh, The second chapter of Luke tells us that he was born of a human woman. He was born of Mary. She went through natural childbirth there in the manger. Uh, He was circumcised. He was given a name in the temple on the eighth day. Uh, Verse 40 tells us of his development. It says the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. In verse 52, it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor of God and man. So his body was like ours in every way. He got hungry. He thirsted. He got tired. He needed sleep. He lacked the strength to carry his cross on the day of his execution because he had been so severely beaten. He bled. He cried. And his body ceased to have life when he was hung on the cross. He was killed on the cross. So we also see there that Jesus grew in wisdom. This shows that he went through a learning process. His human mind had to develop. He had to grow. And we often don't think about this. Jesus had to learn how to, how to walk. He had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to read and write. And Hebrews 5.8, it says that he learned obedience as he grew. He also had a human soul. He had human emotions. He displayed a full range of emotions. We can see this in the Gospels. He laughed. He cried. In Matthew 8.10, he was astonished by the faith of the centurion. In John 11.35, he wept over the death of Lazarus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells his disciples that his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. In a verse that should be convicting to all of us, he, uh, we're told in Hebrews 5.7 that during the days of Jesus' life here on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. He felt emotion. He felt sadness. He felt joy. He felt happiness. He went through the full gamut of emotions that we all feel in our daily lives. He was fully human, but he lived a life differently from all the rest of us. He lived a sinless life, and we have to see that clearly. 
uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that he had no sin. 1 Peter 2.22 states, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And really, this is all the more remarkable when we think about the crushing temptation he was under, especially in the desert when the devil uh, directly tempted him when he was physically weak. Hebrews 4.15 says, we, don't, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. The fact that he faced temptation means that he had a genuine human nature that could be tempted. He felt the same temptations that we do. He felt the temptation to fall into anger, to the temptation to fall into lust, envy, lying, but yet he never committed sin. Another way that we see his humanity uh, is when we see his reception in his hometown. So in Matthew 13, after he started his ministry, you all know the story, he comes back to Nazareth, and uh, we see these words. Coming, <clears throat> coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in the synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't, this, isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. So apparently prior to his ministry, they just perceived Jesus as this average, ordinary guy. You know, he was the village carpenter. He's the guy you called up to fix your door or your table or whatever you needed fixing. Uh, and so when he came back with his ministry and, and, and when he was revealing more of himself, they were shocked by this. And they, in John 7, we see that even his brothers did not believe in him. But that goes to show uh, even more of his humanity, that he was perceived as a normal man coming up. So what about Jesus now? Had, did he lose his humanity when he ascended into heaven? I think the answer is that he still has retained his humanity. He is still fully God, and he is still fully man. He didn't just temporarily become man. Uh, instead, his divine nature was permanently united to his human nature. And this seems to be the teachings that we see when we look at the ascension. And we look at Acts chapter 1, it says... This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. When he was resurrected, he appeared in human form. He ate uh, with the disciples. We also see, as we read in Revelation, that he is going to come back in human form, although it's not going to be a human form robed in humility. It's going to be the form exalted and glorified. So, now that we've seen that Christ was fully human, as we've gone going through that, we're going to start to look at and see that he was fully God as well. So what evidence do we have in Scripture that tells us that he was fully God? What evidence do we have of his deity? I think if we're honest, if we read through the New Testament and we uh, take the New Testament as authority, then there is no denying that Jesus Christ is fully God. Uh, there's no denying that. First we see, uh, first thing we can kind of look at, as we look at the Greek Old Testament, uh, in the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint, 
the words theos and kairos, these Greek words. Theos means God and kairos means Lord. These were used to refer to God in the Old Testament. We see these same Greek words applied in the early manuscripts. These same Greek words are applied to Jesus. We see this in John 1.1, Romans 9.5, and Luke 2.11. Those are three examples there. Secondly, when we're thinking about this, when we're thinking through this, we see that Paul opens up almost all of his letters saying, Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's linking God the Father and Jesus together as a source of grace and peace. We also have some really direct, unambiguous scripture here. In Colossians 2.9, it says, In Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In Hebrews 1.3, we have, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So those are pretty straightforward scriptures there. There's no, really not much argument there. It's not, also, it's not always just linked to the New Testament. We can look at the Old Testament as well. In Isaiah 9.6, uh, when they're talking about this human child to be born, that child that is going to be Jesus Christ, uh, it says that he will be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. And of course we have words from Jesus' mouth himself. Many of you know the great statement he made in John chapter 8 when he says, Before Abraham was born, I am, when he was talking to the Pharisees. So Jesus understood that he was claiming to be God. I am who I am was God's way of identifying himself to Moses. This was a radical statement. In fact, it was so radical, the, the Jews that were there picked up stones to stone him because their unbelieving hearts judged us to be blasphemy. So this was a radical thing. Jesus was very clearly equating himself with God. So, we don't, we don't just see this from statements. We also see this from the life that he lived, from his actions. And I'm just going to go through this a little bit. Uh, one thing that we see is that he displayed omnipotence here on earth. He had authority over all things. He changed water into wine. He fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. He calmed the storm with a word. He commanded evil spirits, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, all while he was here on earth. He, he was omniscient. Jesus knew people's thoughts. He knew who was going to betray him. He knew people's backgrounds. When we think about the woman at the well, he knew backgrounds of people. And even others who spent time with him, we see Peter, you know, when Peter's being restored after he's denied uh, Christ, he says, you know everything, you know everything. And so Peter admits that as well. We also see his uh, immortality. We see that Jesus' human nature can die, but his divine nature cannot. And thus he has the authority to raise up his body. Hebrews 7.16 says that he has the power of an indestructible life. Fourth, we see his sovereignty. We see that he's able to forgive sins. He has the ability to forgive sins. And we see this... Uh, when he sees the faith of the paralytic, he tells him his sins are forgiven. And fifth, we see that he is worthy of worship. Only God is worthy of worship, yet we see Jesus being worshipped as an infant by the Magi and really throughout his ministry on earth, and he's worshipped today in heaven around the throne. So we see that Jesus, it's pretty clear 
uh, through Scripture, very clear, very concrete, that he is fully divine. We see his divine nature, and we see that he shares the divine attributes with God the Father. Now, we're going to talk about the Trinity later on. I'm not going to get into all that. Um, But we see that Jesus says to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, I talked about how this is a difficult subject for us to wrap our minds around. And in the late 19th century, there there were some theologians that were around. And remember, this is late, really, in the church age. When we think about it, late 19th century, that's pretty recent. So we have these theologians, and they're struggling with the, with the incarnation. And so they start kind of applying their own fallen human wisdom to this, and they come up with this theory called the kenosis theory. And I just want to talk about that a little bit because it's kind of a warning not to read text too narrowly and, and not to try to apply some of our uh, faulty wisdom to these things and really see Scripture for what Scripture is. So this kenosis theory comes from the word uh, kenosis, which is a Greek word that we see in Philippians uh, 2.7. That word means to empty. It's usually translated to empty. It's sometimes translated uh, made nothing, made himself nothing. But it comes from this passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. I'm just going to read this for you, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. So the passage says this. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking up the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So these theologians in the late 19th century took that word, made himself nothing, or that word that means to empty, and started to come up with this conjecture that maybe he, Jesus gave up some of his divine attributes while he was here on earth. So he was less than fully divine while he was here on earth. But if you read the text as we've read it, and you look, that's really not what it says. It says he emptied himself by taking up the form of a servant. Basically, He gave up the privilege and status that he had that was his in heaven to come to earth. And it was a massive act of humility. He willingly concealed his glory, or you could say that he veiled his glory. He did not give up his glory. And we see that clearly in the transfiguration. We see that his glory is still there. He's just veiling it in humility to be a servant to us. So, this uh, kenosis theory is is not a good theory. It's unorthodox. Uh, it's not something that we ascribe to here. So really, we need to conclude that Jesus had a fully divine nature and that his name is rightly called Emmanuel, God with us. So now that we've seen that Jesus is fully God and fully man, how how do we draw these two things together? In the orthodox position, the position that we take here at Christ Community Church is sometimes called the hypostatic union, which simply means that that Christ's human and divine natures are united in one person. So, as I said, this is a difficult concept for all of us, and, and during the first few centuries, the early Christians found it difficult as well, and some false teaching uh, began to pop up around this issue. So we have some uh, heresies 
that come out of that. And we're just going to, I'm just going to look at four of those uh, real quickly. And then we'll talk about the orthodox position, the correct position. So one of them is Arianism, uh, which claimed that Jesus was not fully God. And it really comes from those verses where it says that Jesus was the only begotten son. They took that to say that Jesus was created by the Father. And so basically he was somewhere between God and human. He was kind of a middle ground. So that was uh, an untrue uh, heresy. And that's really not what Scripture tells us. Another one is Apollinarianism, which claimed that Jesus had a human body, but not a human mind or spirit. So they basically would say his, his body was human, but his mind and spirit was divine. And so really that... If we fell into that, we'd be saying that Christ's manhood was incomplete because our spirits and souls need salvation as well. So that's really not, uh, that's a false teaching also. The third heresy is Nestorianism, which claimed that there were two separate persons in Christ. So basically he's a schizophrenic uh, figure, uh, two separate people living inside of him. But what scripture tells us is that Christ was not divided. But he had these two natures and one person working together in perfect unity. And the fourth is uh, monophysticism, which claimed that Christ had one nature, uh, a new nature that was basically a hybrid between the human and divine nature. And really, this would leave Christ not representing man nor being a truly holy God. So uh, we see that as a false teaching as well. So. In response to these heresies and others that were going on, there was a council that formed in, the, in 451 AD. It was a large church council. It gathered in the city of uh, Chalcedonian, which is in modern-day Turkey, uh, near Istanbul. So they gathered together to talk about this, to solve these problems, to come up with a statement, uh, to come up with a definition of the nature of Christ. And really, this definition that they came up with in 451 has been taken to be the standard in Orthodox teaching on the person of Christ ever since. So, I'm going to read this. It's a very kind of wordy definition and a little bit difficult, but I think it would be good if you had some time this week. You can just Google this. It'll pop up and just spend a little time with it yourself, just going through it. I think it it helps to read it, uh, not just hear me Uh, speak it, and really just spend some time going through it, because this is what we take as the definition of God, uh, I mean of Jesus uh, as a person. So, here it is. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusably, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, 
the distinction of nature's being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the uh, property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one substance, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten. God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, as the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. So, this was the definition they created to solve these, the controversies of all these heresies. Like I said, it's wordy, uh, it's a little bit difficult to read through, but I think it's worth spending some time with that. Uh, this is really the orthodox definition of the biblical teaching on the person of Christ. And really, straying outside of that definition is straying into heresy. So it's important for us to do that. So, kind of as we wrap all of this up, I think it's okay to say that some of this remains a mystery to us. Some of this is is difficult, and, and we just have to say that some of it is out of our realm of thinking. And that's okay. But this is the important thing to remember. God has given us through Scripture. He's revealed to us everything that we need to know about Jesus. Everything that we need to know in order for us to place our trust in him. In order for us to place our faith in him. So the real question is, who is Jesus? And we have to ask ourselves that question. Who is he in our lives? And really our whole lives are built and judged on how we answer that question. So let's just close by listening to how the Apostle Paul answers this question uh, to the Colossians. Speaking of Jesus, he says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that we're able to gather here together and worship you. We thank you that we can come here to fellowship with each other, that we can come here to learn more about you. We know that uh, you have given us everything we need to know about you through your son. You have revealed yourself to us through him and we thank you that you've given us a high priest that jesus can be our mediator that we can trust in him that he is good and we can place our faith in him that he can deal with our sins we thank you for all that you are lord and we just ask that as we go through this morning we glorify your name amen